All right. Hey, friends. Unfortunately, the podcast did not survive, and we are going to offer a short recap on uh, the message Ascended and Seated uh, as part of our We Believe series uh, for all of our kids volunteers who help out on Sunday and miss the gathering downstairs. So uh, what I'm going to give you for the next 10 to 15 minutes is just a recap, and uh, I'll send you out with some thoughts on what is going on in the creed. We are working our way through the Apostles' Creed, uh, looking at this ancient summary of Christian faith that expresses our trust in God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And at the center of the creed is the person and the work of Jesus, who suffered, died, was raised, and is ascended and seated. There was this moment in the movie Forrest Gump where Lieutenant Dan says, Have you found Jesus? To which Forrest says, I didn't know I was supposed to be looking for him. And I always liked that line because, uh, in my estimation, that question of where is Jesus is not one we usually think about. In fact, the doctrine of the ascension uh, is one of the least talked about, least known bits of theology in my own experience. Um, and so the creed says that he, Jesus, ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. Uh, what is this all about? He ascended and he is seated. Uh, this is actually described in Acts chapter 1. We actually looked at the ascension at the beginning of our Acts series last year. Um, and so I'll just recap this here for us. That uh, In Acts 1 verse 6, uh, the disciples come together and they ask the Lord, Are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said, It's not for you to know the times and seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And that is the plot line of the book of Acts. Jesus sends the Spirit to empower his followers for mission to the nations to the end of the age. In other words, it is about what Jesus keeps on doing by the Spirit through the church. The next thing that happens is it says that uh, Luke tells us that when these things happened, they were looking on and he, Jesus, was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. While they were gazing into heaven, he went. As he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So Luke is telling us what happened. Jesus was taken up out of their sight. The angels say he will return which we'll look at next week in detail. So where is Jesus and what is he up to? That's really what the doctrine or this this belief in the ascension is all about. 
Uh, on one hand, Jesus promises his presence. Matthew 18, when two or more are gathered in my name, there I am in your midst. And Matthew 28, I am with you always to the end of the age. But how and where? Because Paul talks about Jesus as absent. Uh, to be home in the body, alive, means to be away from the Lord. And to be at home with the Lord is to be away from the body. It's to be on the other side of death. And even the angels to Mary Magdalene are very clear on Resurrection Sunday that Jesus is not here. In other words, he's not in the grave, and that means he's not everywhere, but he's somewhere else. And I I reference this uh, mostly because uh, many envision Jesus to be somehow spiritually diffused, as if he's no longer human, that he's somehow set aside the limits of his human body. But the entire creed actually hangs on the reality of Jesus' true humanity, that he's become human, he's take on, taken on flesh. And so that picture in Acts 1 is that the physical Jesus who died, who rose physically, also ascended physically and will return physically. And, and the early church found this to be very important because uh, of the threat of what was called Gnosticism, this kind of understanding that evil in the world was caused by an evil creator and the real salvation that we needed was to be a spiritual salvation. You needed to get on some extra spiritual plane to uh, uh, transcend our bodily uh, trappings. And this, this was a dangerous spirituality. And the creed faces it down. Uh, the Father, maker of heaven and earth, Jesus, born of a virgin, um, the resurrection, these hopes are all earthy. There's an earthy future for Jesus and an earthy future for his followers. So what's going on then is that Jesus is actually somewhere in space and time. He's in heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father, and yet he's relationally present through the Spirit who unites his followers to him. So that distance or space and distance is actually really a matter of relationship. So that the, the Spirit who eternally proceeds from the Father and the Son can actually be experienced uh, in a way that draws us into a, a continuous presence of Jesus. Okay, now if your head isn't spinning already, let me just break this down into three very simple statements about the Ascension in terms of why it has any significance for us. The first is this, that the Ascension of Jesus means that he's currently ruling. Uh, Jesus is... Uh, seated at the right hand of the Father, which means he is ruling. Um, The Bible opens with a job description for humanity, uh, that we are to rule, that humans are intended to work and worship. And so this job description to rule is actually God delegating his authority to humans, that he creates humans in this context of this garden temple where God takes up residence to reign and rule, and he chooses to delegate that to humans. In fact, the the word for image, the humans who are the image of God, is actually the word for an idol, the idea that uh, in God's taking up residence in, in his creation as a temple, he installs humans as his physical representations who make visible the invisible reality of God. And so humans then are given this vocation to co-rule, stewarding the world in a trusting relationship where God actually defines good and evil. However, humans forfeit that role by seizing autonomy for themselves, causing not only a relational rift, 
but also a lost vocation. So with humanity turned in on themselves, they have lost their connection to God and lost their ability to carry out their job in the creation. Now, instead of shalom, God's peace and, and rightly ordered world growing, it's actually from Genesis 1 through 11, we see this story of violence and arrogance increasing and mul- multiplying all the way to the Tower of Babel. The entire storyline of the Bible actually, in one sense, is about seeing the human restored to their vocation, uh, to, the, to, to ruling. And that is why there's a promise to David, Israel's great king, that through his line there will be a Messiah, a royal ruler, who will sit on David's throne. That, that Messiah will then represent the people of Israel and restore humans to their vocation to partner with Yahweh and his caring rule over creation. So the ascension brings the Bible story to its rightful resolution. How is God going to restore humanity to its ruling vocation? Now, in Jesus, in the ascended, exalted king, uh, we actually now have a human at the helm of the universe, ruling as God and man, bringing together our entire destiny to be God's vice regents. That is the Bible plot on one level. And it's also Jesus' self-understanding. When he's questioned on trial by the high priest, are you the son of God? He responds in his classic way uh, with ambiguity and says, you have said so. But then he says, but I tell you from now on, you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. So Jesus is referring to two key Old Testament texts, Psalm 110. It says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Uh, So this has to do with the right hand sharing God's rule. And Daniel chapter 7, where after wrestling the beast-like empires who are raging and trampling on God's people, there arises a, a figure called the Son of Man that says, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of Man. And to him was given dominion and a glory and a kingdom. So this whole thing is about Jesus taking on the imagery of the ascended ruling one. In fact, when he says, um, you'll see the Son of Man, uh, and he says, um, seated at the right hand of power and coming down the clouds, that's not about the second coming. That's about his exaltation and ascension. Paul t- says the same thing in Ephesians 1 when he talks about how Christ is seated up, uh, at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. And he's put all things under his feet. Again, you hear all of the Old Testament imagery coming together here in Ephesians 1, 18 through 23. And so, all of this picture of Jesus ruling might sound cool and ties the Bible study story together, but I want to bring it down to just three basic things that, that it does for us. The first is it actually holds the believer in unshakable confidence. That it, it, as we um, follow Paul's instruction to set our minds on things above where Christ is seated, we realize that he is not freaking out. We're not living in denial with our head in the sand about the broken realities of our world, but to see those realities in light of the one who's really in charge, that our life is hidden in God and he bears our humanity before the Father. And uh, and what it really means is that our destiny is to share with him in his glory. And everything else that happens in life is simply an opportunity to grow, to mature and to join God in his mission. 
And we become very shaky when we lose sight of who's really ruling. Uh, but if the Christian holds on to this teaching, this understanding, it begins to settle into our bones in a way that gives us unshakable confidence. The second thing, though, too, is that the ascension tells us and helps hold us and the powers of the world accountable. Psalm 110, describing uh, Jesus ruling until his enemies are made a footstool. Well, that doesn't sound very nice in our society, but the ascension really is about God's incredible patience, that he's already exalted his king, his way of suffering love has been vindicated, and the way of rebellious sin has been shown for what it does is in the ugliness of the cross. And yet, in all of that, God graciously gives us opportunities to accept his way of peace and reconciliation and repent. And so, for God not to deal with evil and injustice would make him a culprit, and rather we need to see our opportunity to enter into the power that that we are delegated to to carry out in the same kind of way that Jesus carries it out. So whether you own a business and or you lead employees, it is to to understand that all of the power that is given to you is to be ultimately held in check by the reigning and ruling king. And in a young church like ours, most often uh the place that is uh the place we most frequently exercise power and authority is in the home with children. Uh, and what I want to say here is that uh, we will find ourselves angry and frustrated and flexing power if our goal is to accomplish godly children, that we have to somehow accomplish something in them. And I would argue that that is a foolish uh, notion that it's a fool's errand, that really the only appropriate aim for the parent is to give your kid a godly parent, because that actually puts the onus of responsibility on ourselves, that we would check our power and authority and recognize that it is in offering our kids a model of um, of godly parents who confess and repent and love and walk in the Spirit. Well, the third thing that this does is it holds up the true way to be human. So it holds us with unshakable confidence. And it holds us accountable because he's reigning and ruling, but it also shows the true way of being human. Jesus didn't bring the kingdom by seizing and uh, power, but by suffering love. And so if coercive power is your jam, then the kingdom won't be very attractive and Jesus won't be respectable. So I would invite you to allow the ascension to cause you to reevaluate what is truly desirable, because it's the Father that exalts the crucified one in the place of the highest honor. That the way to be human, the way we are aiming to be human, is to lift up others above ourselves. And it starts by the small things of trying to be interested in others rather than proving you're interesting, by structuring your time in ways that give rather than merely take by being uh, people who intercede for others who are downwardly mobile and outwardly focused. Otherwise, the life of heaven will be completely foreign. And so the one who is ruling is also the one who does not rule through exploitation or forcing his way, but uh, through suffering love, who is exalted not uh, like any other king, but with a crown of thorns on a cross. And so as Jesus faces down an oppressive empire, he does so by allowing it to do its worst uh, in a way that models for us the kind 
of humanity we are meant to embrace in the face of opposition and hatred uh, that we are to resemble the kind of self-giving love that we see in Jesus. The second thing, uh, so the first thing is that Jesus ascended means that he's ruling. The second thing is that Jesus, uh, the ascended Jesus is also our intercessor. Uh, if he's ruling as the crucified king, he's also uh, ruling in a way that is priestly. Hebrews chapter 1 says that uh, the one who uh, upholds the universe by the power of his word is the one who, after making purification for sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And in and, uh, chapter seven twenty five, it says that he lives to intercede. Romans chapter 8 talks about uh, who condemns us. Who is the one who will condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of God? See, in other words, uh, what we uh, see in Jesus, what he's doing right now is he is interceding. He continues his priestly work, and uh, even the word for ascend uh, is the word that echoes the Old Testament notion of prayer, that prayers go up, they arise to God, and Jesus, in a very real way, is our prayer. We go upward in relationship to the Father through Jesus' ascension. And so God hears you in Christ, and he hears uh, the intercession of Christ on your behalf. What it means then, in the same way that Jesus says to Peter, Satan asked to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you. It means uh, that when we struggle to be faithful in our hearts, minds, and actions, Jesus is actually more invested than we are at every moment in our progress and our perseverance. That he's praying for you even when you've given up. That he's praying for you when you are headlong in the wrong direction. That he is longing for your best even when you are working hard to sabotage it. Does this mean that we have no responsibility? No, not at all. But it does mean that we have an advocate. That the ruler of the universe is actively living to save us to the uttermost as he's interceding for us uh, and will raise us in glory. And, and so he represents our humanity to the Father in his priestly role. Even our response to God is mediated through him in his ongoing incarnation. And so it's good news for you that he's ruling because he's also interceding. And otherwise he would be a terrible burden. See, to fully rest in Jesus doesn't stop simply at the cross, but trusting uh, that he is presently even mediating your very response to the Father in his humanity. And then finally, the third thing is that Jesus, uh, the ascension of Jesus means you have his presence. So the ascension of Jesus means he's ruling. The ascension of Jesus means he's interceding. And the ascension of Jesus also means you have his presence because he's absent. He can be relationally present to you through the Spirit. This is the teaching of Jesus in John's upper room discourse, uh, that we are, in a sense, better off without him, or at least physically, because his departure to be with the Father is the impetus to send the Spirit. So he says in John 16, verse 13, When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, and he will take what is mine and declare it to you. 
uh, and all that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So the Spirit, uh, his whole job, the Spirit's job is to give us Jesus, uh, to to give us the things of Jesus. As one theologian I read this week said, Jesus is not everywhere, but he is everywhere accessible. And this is true because he sends the Spirit. Therefore, he can be in communion with you through his Spirit. Uh, what I would offer here is just simply my own uh, walk with Jesus, which is that I was reminded this week in my own prayer life that what I really truly long for, what I want more than anything else is genuinely communion with Christ. And I would confess to you that many times I approach prayer because I need something from God so that I can do something for God. And what was so profoundly impactful for me this week in my own time in prayer was was the unveiling of a deeper desire to just be with him, not to do things for him, but to be with him. That, that was gracious, I believe, because God is not looking for us to do anything for him. He ha- has already done all that is re- accomplished for the the kingdom, that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. His being seated means that he's done. He's done his work. He has accomplished redemption. What he wants to do is apply that work into our lives. And when you read the great biographies of the great saints, it's not their theology, uh, although it's great. It's not their accomplishments, although they're great, that were most important. But in every one of uh, the stories of the great saints throughout church history, the thing that is most striking, the thing that is most transformative and most profound for them is a a, a, a profound personal connection with the love of God for them. Uh, that it's the love of God that, that penetrates into their souls, that produced something deeply transformative. And over and over and over, it's the overwhelming taste of God's goodness and personal love for the believer that is most transforming. And so when I'm not at peace and when I feel guilty or when I'm insecure or when I'm burdened with all that I'm unable to carry, it's not my own sufficiency or ability that brings me confidence, but it is the quiet affirmation of the Spirit that I am loved by God that I am in Christ, and as I am in Christ, I am called a son, that I am loved, and that I am well-pleasing to the Father, and my life is hidden with Christ in God. See, this is the great ministry of the Holy Spirit, that wonderful ministry that Paul describes as the pouring out of the love of God into our hearts. All that Jesus accomplished is applied to us and experienced by the Holy Spirit. And I would suggest this morning or today that if you are joyless, if you have no joy, pray that God would give you a taste of his goodness. And as a result, that gratitude for his goodness would begin to emerge. And as a result, joy would begin to grow. If you're in sin in any way, if you're caught in a sin, caught in sin pattern, then pray primarily that you would experience his deep love for you. Because it's only his deep love for you that will bring you freedom. It's only through the power of a greater affection that you 
will see your chains for what they are, sin for the ugliness that it is, and walk in freedom as one who is loved into new creation. And so we need the Spirit to bring us the things of Jesus, because it is only because He ascended and is seated and has graciously offered His presence by means of the Spirit, the, the Spirit's relationship to Jesus, uh, which now brings us into that communion of of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. You can have His presence today. During the gathering, we spent some time in prayer to be attentive to the Spirit's voice, to ask, Lord, bring me the things of Christ so that I can taste and know that you are good. Bring to mind the things of Christ that are true for me. Uh, I will end in prayer here, the collect for the ascension season. You have exalted your divine Son with a great triumph to your kingdom in heaven. You do not leave us without comfort, but you sent your Spirit to strengthen us and exalt us to the place where Christ has gone before us. Give us eyes, Lord, to hear or to see, ears, lips to taste and perceive that you are good. Amen.